Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, how was your week? Last time we spoke, you had actually had quite a, a scare, really. How have things progressed? I haven't had another episode, so that's a good thing. This syndrome, you just end up having this series of weird events that no one can explain, and as long as you survive them, <laughs> it's it's fine. Carry on to the next one. But what's the outcome? What's the follow-up? What's the... Oh, zero follow-up. I've been discharged from the TIA clinic after one meeting. Because it wasn't a TIA or...? They decided that it wasn't, I guess. The problem with us is that we have all these symptoms. The conventional tests don't reveal anything, so then we are deemed okay and we are discharged. Yeah, and then it takes another acute episode of something to re-enter the system to be looked at again. That's the problem. There's no oversight of the illness. I would go a bit further and say there's no oversight of patients who have chronic illness. Within the NHS? Yeah. All they're trying to do is get you through the pain, possibly to some kind of... Intervention. Intervention, and then they dismiss you. There's just no body of evidence, I guess, to try and teach people systemically. So there's no long-term strategy. It's, And I guess that's the pandemic all over. It's firefighting the worst points but with no overview of how we deal with this. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's, I think we've learned that over the last year of doing this and actually finding out that we're chronically ill, that you come to this realisation, if you have a broken bone, yes, they can fix it. They can replace your heart. But other than that, there is no real whole body treatment. Yeah, I think that's where it really, for me, I really notice it breaking down, this lack of a holistic approach, lack of working out how each of these things is impacting the other, the way that our symptoms are treated all separately. But if you look at the situation that you faced the other day, it's not just a heart thing or just a blood thing or just it's you've got to look at it as a whole. And we don't have that. No, we don't. You can make the same analogy about drug interactions. We are under all these separate consultants, if we're lucky. We're given all these different drugs, but there is no one person. That person should be your GP, I guess. Apparently, they're not meant to look at drug interactions anymore unless you specifically ask them (laughs) to check whether one thing is interacting with another. And I think the body works the same way. We don't know if one one intervention is helping or hindering another thing. I got to the point with some of my things where you end up not knowing whether actually this symptom is now being caused by the drug or the strategy that you have employed to try and alleviate something else. After last week's episode, and I related the story about what happened to me, someone actually emailed us and said, do you know that uh, Evabradine causes those flashes? Oh, great. Did anyone mention that to you in the hospital? No. Did anyone ask what you were currently taking? Yes. Maybe it wasn't that, because it was quite intense. The kind lady who did email us said she hasn't heard of anything quite as severe as what I explained I had experienced, but that this symptom could be a possible side effect of taking Vepardine. That is absolutely fascinating and kind of horrifying. I'm feeling better. 
<laughs> Less breathless, but still breathless. Still quite dizzy on occasion, but I'm not as bad as I was. I think I'm coming out of what I was going through. Yeah, because you've actually had a rough sort of four or five weeks, haven't you? Yeah. How about you? How was your week? I've just had a a rough week. I've had several days where I've really struggled to get out of bed. I had one day where I was really so dizzy I couldn't really stand up and I'm I've had the headaches and I've had the shakes again I've got that constriction back in the back of my throat and my latest weird symptom that I don't think we've discussed on here and it's something I'd heard about in the acute phase but I feel like my tongue is swollen it is too big for my mouth and by the end of the day the sides of my tongue are really sore because they've been brushing against my teeth I've had that symptom for a year. That was probably one of my first symptoms. And I self-medicated with antihistamine, Periton, and it helped. Okay, I haven't tried antihistamine for it. I've just, this week, mainly been taking painkillers and anti-inflammatories. But it's really annoying. I've still got it. And whenever I have a crash, what happens is my tongue swells and then I get ulcers. Mm. You know, the hilarious thing, well, not the hilarious, (laughs) The horribly sad thing is that we seem to be going through and getting different symptoms. Yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to say to you today is this, whilst it's relapsing and remitting, it's also progressive. And it's not to say that everything always worsens, but it progresses. So you have gained symptoms that I was having, and I have gained symptoms that you were having. And then Actually, if you look back at our lists from six months ago, you notice some of those things are not quite so prominent. But I don't understand that process. And I don't know when it's going to stop. Well, this is the most worrying thing for me is that we are having disease progression, but it's not a downward progression. It's really strange, isn't it? Actually, one of my worst symptoms this week has been that the nausea's come back and I've found it difficult to eat. And then when I have eaten, I've got bad stomach cramps and things. So... It's been useful putting together this week's edit. Um, We actually wanted to bring it back to some no-nonsense advice from Professor Mary Hickson, who is a professor of dietetics at the University of Plymouth. Mary and her team have created um, something called the Nutrition and COVID-19 Knowledge Hub, which is to try and give people the resources to help themselves nutritionally and recovery from acute COVID and has a lot about long COVID. It's designed for both patients and healthcare professionals. So what were the major findings or things that you feel need to be addressed in the recovery for long COVID in terms of nutrition? The problem with long COVID seems to be that there's a huge range of different symptoms that people can suffer. And those symptoms can affect people's ability to maintain a good, adequate diet in different ways. And so people need help to manage their individual symptom pattern. Um, And everybody seems to be different. And I understand both you and Noreen, Emily, have quite a different range of symptoms. Yeah. And so you've got different problems to manage that might affect your nutrition in different ways. It's worth saying that there's no 
diet that is going to cure long COVID. So trying to help people get through long COVID is about trying to support them to optimize their diet so it can support their immune system and to manage any symptoms that they have. So that's how we've tried to organize the hub is to produce a list of symptoms and highlight how that might affect your diet and your nutrition and how you might be able to manage those. So in your findings to date, you have not seen evidence of any one diet being the thing that we should all go to no. to recover from long COVID. No, no, it's going to be individual. It's going to depend on your nutritional state before you've got COVID and then how you've been eating during your acute phase and following how you've been eating during your recovery phase. Okay. You know, if you're suffering from fatigue, which a lot of people do, it can be really hard to manage all that shopping, cooking, preparing meals. If you suffer from brain fog as well, that makes managing a menu and diet over a week and doing recipes, that can be quite a challenge too. And so people may be restricting their diet or simplifying their diet in order to cope. And that may be having an effect on their nutritional status. So there are a couple of dietary conditions that seem to affect long COVID patients. And one of them is this idea of people having suffering with MCAS. So people are trying to find low histamine diets. Is that something that you'd look at? I know Emily's tried it. So, so low histamine diet is, is one thing that's been proposed as, as possibly helpful. It's going to depend on the individuals to what their symptoms are. There's no evidence that it is going to work. This, but this, <laughs> this is the problem with nutrition. It's extremely hard to gather the evidence. So lack of evidence doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means there's no evidence that it does work. So it's a big question mark. And so what people tend to do is to try it out and give it a go and see if it helps them, which is a reasonable strategy if you've got reasonable grounds to think it's, it's going to help. Yeah, and also if it doesn't cause detriment or further harm. Because I think one of the things with a lot of the discussion that is out there is it's about exclusion, either excluding certain food groups or excluding high histamine foods or only eating at specific times of the day. And I think that these are all things that without careful management, you could end up moving into the malnutrition sphere. Absolutely. And that's the problem with restrictive diets and low histamine can be quite a restrictive diet and I would suggest that if people want to follow it properly and again that's the problem with diets if you want to do it you need to kind of do it properly to see if it's going to have an effect if you're not managing to exclude all the relevant foods it may be that your symptoms won't improve but you're still struggling to maintain a restrictive diet I would say that following the low histamine diet has actually been incredibly detrimental to me nutritionally because one of the things that I ate constantly before I started that low histamine diet was spinach. 
turns out is because I was really, really low on iron, which is why my body was craving spinach. I had to cut out spinach, but I also had cut out things like bananas, a lot of nuts and seeds, a lot of pulses and things like this, all gone from my diet. And I, before I started that low histamine diet, I ate a really good diet. So by being told to sort of follow this low histamine things, I have done myself a massive disservice because I now I'm struggling to get back onto eating the way I used to eat. And this is a problem with these really restrictive diets and why I really would recommend people get some support to do it and really to monitor carefully because if it isn't improving your symptoms, do not follow it and it will not help everybody. Um, if it's something that you really think is important for you to try, then try it with some support and some expertise and put a time limit on it because it's it's so damaging to exclude so many foods from your diet unnecessarily. Yeah. So it has it has to be giving you a benefit. You have to see the benefit to continue. So it's getting the right advice and trying to get to see a dietitian, preferably or a nutritionist, to support you to to follow these quite restrictive, difficult diets. So some of the other ones that people have talked about are restricting dairy, restricting gluten, keto or low carbohydrate diets, and intermittent fasting. So they're all dietary patterns that have been proposed that might help. There's no evidence that any of them will help with COVID. It's really about optimizing your diet, ensuring you've got all the essential nutrients to support a healthy immune system, and finding ways to manage your particular set of symptoms. And can it be done without supplements? Can we just do it with food? Well, I would always suggest that you try and optimise your diet so you get all the essential nutrients that you need from your food. Yeah. So food carries your nutrients in a matrix that can affect how it's um, absorbed in the gut. So if you're taking tablets as supplements, they may not be absorbed in the same way that the nutrient is when it's as part of a feed matrix. So you are much better off trying to take that in? in... If you can, yeah. And supplements, if you have a deficiency state, if you definitely are deficient, it's appropriate to take supplements to correct the deficiency. But you shouldn't need to take them forever and Ideally, you would then try and optimise your diet so that you get that nutrient from, from food. And the, the optimal diet to aim to follow is what we call a Mediterranean-type diet. So I'm sure you've heard of, of this. So it's um, high in plant-based foods, lots of fruit and vegetables. Your protein intake will come mainly from fish, nuts, seeds, dairy, eggs, um, poultry, much less red meat, so only occasionally using olive and other unsaturated oils and fats. And would you say that that's the optimum diet across the board um, or specifically in post-COVID recovery? Across the board. So there's evidence to show that um, Mediterranean-style diet is helpful in cardiovascular disease, in cancer, so all different types of chronic conditions that we can develop, that style of diet. So getting your five a day, 
variety of colored fruit and vegetables to get all the different flavonoids and nutrients and minerals and the lower fat protein sources um, plenty of nuts and seeds as well because they can provide lots of essential minerals particularly as well as vitamins and it's having lots of variety in a post-acute phase of of covid what would your recommendation be in these early stages of anything that we need to up anything that we need to reduce to aid this initial phase of recovery i'm taking it's not monster munch which i have a craving for at the moment (laughs) pickled onion flavor it's been kind to yourself um you know you're oh so monster munch very good (laughs) yeah yeah if you've just been really ill and you're just trying to get better important eat and drink so make sure you drink enough and eat enough Um, if you can eat a diet along the the lines of I've I've described but if if you really don't feel like it and and you want some comfort food like your monster munch Noreen that's okay (laughs) (laughs) for a little bit oh I I feel terrible as soon as I eat it but the great thing about diet is that it, it is the overall pattern and mixture of your diet that's important. So there's no one food that you shouldn't have or can't have ever. Um, and equally, there's no one food that is a magic bullet and you have to have and everybody must eat. So it's trying to get that mixture. And if a bit of Monster Munch slips in there from time to time, <laughs> don't feel guilty. <laughs> Obviously, it all sort of adds together, but is there a time period over which your body starts to feel the effects of of malnutrition? Say if I just ate, if I'd just been eating Monster Munch for the last week and a half because I've just been going through the acute phase, how long does it take before your body is starved of of its nutrients? So many... um... Vitamins and minerals. Um, are in you know, Monster you... Munch. <laughs> no, sorry, they're not. <laughs> they are in your body, though. You do have body stores. So it can take some time to get to deficiency states. But the first thing you're likely to see is a change in weight. So I know some people who've had COVID have lost weight. Other people have gained weight. And again, it varies. It depends on the problems and the symptoms that the individual has. So weight loss is a key signal that you're not eating enough. Um, And if you're not eating enough in terms of energy, it's likely you're going to be low in the essential vitamins and minerals and protein as well. One of the things that Emily's had for almost as long as we've spoken, she's felt nauseous. So it's really difficult to eat. She's just not been able to eat. Yeah. And that's incredibly difficult when you've lost your appetite And on top of that, you're feeling a bit sick. It's very hard to eat enough. Yeah, because also, I mean, I absolutely love cooking. That's one of the things I always live for is cooking and entertaining people. And I tend to feel so nauseous half the time that I don't even feel like cooking. And so we've had people say, you should just be throwing everything in a pot and making a delicious Mediterranean soup. When you feel one awful but two nauseous that is really really difficult to do so are there sort of any go-to things that you can well it's eating things that you think you can tolerate eating little and often 
can sometimes help with nausea. Um, so sometimes it can get worse the longer you go without food. That's quite a good tip if you've got a poor appetite as well. So you just don't have much drive to eat is just keep snacking. So eat little and often through the day rather than trying to have set meals where a whole meal might be too much to mm. manage. You know, people's tastes and preferences just really vary. So it's hard to give any definitive <laughs> advice to a group. It's thinking about yourself and thinking what works what works for you. And I don't know if you've suffered smell and taste changes, because I know a lot of people. I didn't. I, I lost my sense of smell and taste completely the first time I had COVID. And I don't know if that is what caused me to be less interested in food. Well, quite possibly, because if you can't taste it, and smell is an important part of taste, it just all ends up being bland and you don't get the experience and the pleasure that you used to from yeah. food. So you don't have that drive to eat. Sometimes that can drive us to eat too much, <laughs> seeking those pleasurable experiences yeah. of tasty food. And then if you've lost your sense of taste, that pleasure is gone and that can mean people eat less. And that can lead to malnutrition, so undereating and weight loss. Equally, some people have suffered weight gain because they're tired, they're not moving around, but they're eating the same amount. And that can obviously lead to weight gain, which is then very difficult to manage if you don't feel like you can exercise. Well, that was me on the other end of Emily, yeah, because my symptoms are cardiac. So my cardiologist told me don't move. So I didn't for six months. And on top of that, I have severe insomnia, so I'm up all the time. So if you're up for 24 hours, you do get quite hungry during the night. So I have more meals. <laughs> yeah, so it's a real challenge, isn't it? It's interesting talking to the two of you with opposite, polar opposite problems where weight is concerned. If you go and see a dietitian, they can sit down with you and go through your diet history, what you do normally eat, what you manage to eat, what you like to eat identify where there might be gaps in your nutrient intake and try and help you think through strategies to Emily help you eat enough and Noreen perhaps eat less or less frequently or different types of food to try and um, manage any further or avoid any further weight gain. You do really need the individualized approach and People who come and uh, sort of present a diet as the way to go forward, it's, it'll work for some people, but it won't work for everybody because everybody is highly individual when it comes to their diet. Do you look at the gut and microbiomes with your set of skills? So I've, got, I've had some experience um, doing research with probiotics. So it's a very interesting area. Um, there's been a lot of work over the last 10, 15 years, so it's ever moving forward. There are new uh, research papers and evidence coming out that says COVID stays in your gut long after you've gotten over the acute phase, and that might be causing the long COVID symptoms. So your gut is an important part of your immune system, so it's a, it's a barrier and there's a whole host of bacteria in there that that contribute and your 
gut microbiome varies between people and it's influenced by your diet and your environment and probably your genetics. But quite the mechanisms for how it's influencing immunity and may influence COVID and long COVID, it's just not been worked out yet. But there is work looking at giving people probiotic supplements to see if that helps. So there's ongoing studies. The other thing to mention about probiotics is probiotics are bacteria that give some benefit to the host, the human person that they're in. So not all bacteria can be classed as a probiotic. And really, you can't class a bacteria as probiotic until you've proved it's going to give humans a benefit. So there's lots of products out there with bacteria in them that are touted as probiotics, but they don't actually have the evidence to show what benefit they're bringing. Different bacterial strains work in different ways. So just because one probiotic product works for a particular condition doesn't mean it's going to help with all conditions or everybody. So it, it's like thinking about uh, drugs as a whole group. You, you don't just give people drugs. You know, we're quite refined about what, which drug we give when and how much. And that's how to think about probiotics. They're different bacterial strains, and we need to work out which strain to give, how much and when to really help treat disease. And that's the issue that we're researchers are trying to unpick. Right and so now. that we are sort of working towards that more targeted. Yeah. 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 Both Emily and I, we have been recommended a particular brand of probiotic. It's Simprove. It's very expensive, but it seems to be something that people have recommended over and over again as something quite beneficial. And it does help yeah, me. in the sort of long COVID community. Yeah. Okay, so um, they've done some research. They don't, haven't done any research specifically, as I know, on COVID and its effects in COVID. So it's generally thought to help improve the composition of the bacteria in your gut in a helpful way. Um, it's like you're doing a trial on yourself. So you, you start taking it, you see if you get better, but you don't actually know if you would get better anyway with time. So you kind of have to stop taking it and see if you get worse again to really be sure it's having an effect. And that really is the story, though, of long COVID, isn't it? It's we are all experimenting on ourselves, and with the drugs, with the diets, with the supplements, and you know, very well educated and experienced people like yourselves. It's all educated guesses. We think we've seen this before in another thing. Maybe this will work for you. And the good thing about probiotics is they are unlikely, very unlikely, to do any harm. The most harm they can do is to your pocket. Yeah, so yes, which is considerable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's a really difficult area, though, isn't it? It is a bit similar to the supplements, I believe, in the sort of lack of regulation and the lack of very strict measures around, around labelling and around what we are being sold. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so probiotics are regarded as a food rather than a drug, like um, nutrient supplements as well. So they don't have to follow the same strict regulations that drugs do, medications do. 
So they're far less controlled. That means there's a whole array out there of different doses, different types, and they're not required to prove that they are beneficial in all the circumstances they're recommended for. So with nutrients, there's recommended nutrient intakes. And um, so a standard are those fairly accurate and, and up to date, the sort of things that we see on the side, which says RDA? Yeah. That all has a scientific basis. Multivitamins and minerals will be formulated to meet daily requirements. So some will be, be formulated to give you 100%. And is, are those set out by the Association of Dietetics or is that? So, so the government have a body called Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition. And they have set out what the daily recommended nutrient intakes are for UK population. Um, And so manufacturers will follow those um, set of standards in formulating their products. But some uh, nutrient supplements can be in quite high doses and more isn't necessarily better when it comes to nutrient supplements. If you have too high a dose, A, it might be harmful or B, your body doesn't store it, so you're just usually weeing it out. So, again, it, it's pressure on your pocket. <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily doing anything. So, trying to take a supplement that meets the daily nutrient intake is the best advice. Are there any supplements that we should be taking? Well, as I said at the start, I would always recommend trying to optimise your diet and get it, getting your nutrients, your vitamins and minerals through food and through a food matrix rather than taking a, a supplement. If you're really struggling to eat well because you're feeling ill, taking a multivitamin and mineral to tide you over could be a good idea. I would take it whilst you're eating suboptimally and as you improve your diet, back to where you want it to be, you shouldn't need to take a supplement anymore. You know, if you're following a nice um, Mediterranean-type diet, you shouldn't need to take a supplement. You'll be getting all the nutrients you need. If you're able to go and see a dietitian and they can do an analysis of your diet, one of the things that can really help if you are going to see a dietitian or a nutritionist is to keep a diet diary. And Now, people find this quite a challenge to do because it's quite tedious but it, basically it's writing down everything you eat um, when you eat it and sometimes why you eat it depending what you're trying to look at um, through the day for seven to ten days and then a dietitian can look at that and get a really good idea of of your dietary intake and alongside that should we also be putting our symptom fluctuations sort of that would be really helpful, yeah. Are there any magic foods that you could recommend? <laughs> you know, people try things out like bone broth. Um, it's really helpful for them. So for them, as far as they're concerned, it's the magic bullet. But it doesn't work for everybody. Are there any superfoods that do work? Well, this, it's the super diet. It's the Mediterranean-style diet. Yeah. You're not going to make one of those foodstuffs sing out. You just want us to be measured in our approach, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah. You know, the human body needs a whole range of vitamins and minerals 
protein and energy in your diet. Um, so there's no one food that's going to deliver all of those together. So there is no one superfood. And it's getting the right mixture of foods in your diet that's, that's really going to maintain and optimize your health. So again, people who are promoting individual foods or nutrients, it may be that that's particularly helped them. Perhaps they were deficient. That's why it's worked for them. Uh, or perhaps they're trying to sell something. And that may also be the case and worth considering. I'm sorry, I'm really boring here. But it's again, it's about optimizing your diet and trying to get all your nutrients that you need and your Mediterranean style diet is your best approach. Now, it's good to hear this because we get told the long COVID bubble that we live in promotes a lot of supplements, a lot of this, a lot of that. And sometimes it's just good to come back to earth where we're just like, okay, well, you don't need a big box of collagen. <laughs> it's like vitamin C, you know, high dose vitamin C has been promoted to cure the common case for decades, but there is no evidence for it at all. And really? there has been some, even some quite well-controlled, randomised controlled trials kind of look at it. And if you're deficient, it might help. Um, but if you're not, and it's not that hard to maintain your levels if you eat some fruit every day. And, you know, vitamin C is in, in more than that as well. It, uh, in the UK, we get a lot of our vitamin C from potatoes. So potatoes yeah. are a particularly rich source, but we eat quite a lot of them. They have potatoes in Monster Munch, don't they? It's corn. It's corn. No, no, no. It's much more healthy. It's some kind of puffed up corn thing. Are there specific levels that we should ask to be having checked with our long COVID? It's about your GP will need to assess what symptoms you have. Okay. So they're indicative of any particular nutrient deficiency. deficiency for example I and your gp is likely to check that as as a routine thing because it's so common um, and relatively easy to treat but for something like magnesium it's not easy to test for that so that just doing a blood test isn't really going to tell you very much because your body is very very good at controlling the blood levels of magnesium so it doesn't reflect what is in your body so it does depend on the on the nutrient that you're kind of interested in. And not all nutrients are easy to check for deficiency states. It's quite difficult, though, because then you do need to go into these appointments armed with... Some knowledge. Some knowledge. And you don't want to all go in and have Dr. Internet with you, but some knowledge of your potential symptoms and what deficiencies that could potentially... Well, if, you, if you're suffering from long COVID, you shouldn't assume you've got a nutrient deficiency <laughs> unless there's a reason for that. And listening to you, you've, you've been suffering with all these symptoms for over a year. So if your diet has been affected for that long in a significant way, you could have developed a deficiency. But you'd need to look at what, you're, what you've been eating and what your nutrient intake's been in order to assess what might be at risk. And for that, you need to see a dietitian or a nutritionist. They've got the skills to look at your diet history and identify where the problem areas might be. And so you can see just through talking to two of you <laughs> how varied your symptoms can be and how difficult it is to identify. Is the symptom related to COVID? Is it related to 
how your life has become because of COVID and your diet. And all that needs unpicking. And you need to do it holistically. Um, and a dietitian or a nutritionist is best place to do that, to look at your diet and your lifestyle holistically and give you individualised, tailored advice. That sounds all very time consuming and the constraints on the NHS at the moment. We're just, we're just not going to get more than five minutes with somebody. Well, if you do get to see a dietitian, you will get more than five minutes because there's not a lot we can do in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're going to talk about diet and take a brief diet history, normally dietitians would see people half an hour in the first instance and sort of 15, 20 minutes for follow-up. Um, but if you can go along, if you get an appointment, you can go along with um, your diet diary already done. Yeah. You can save can take 10 15 minutes to take a diet history so if it's you really go along tip. with that done that's really really helpful and would your recommendation be for us to all seek the advice of a dietitian i'm not trying to overload the nhs but do you think that this is a string that we should be taking seriously in our recovery and and that people are possibly ignoring or just doing the latest thing that they've read on the internet I think it's absolutely unrealistic to think that everybody with long COVID can see a dietitian. It's just not going to happen. There aren't enough dietitians in the UK. We're a relatively small profession. I think there's eight or 9,000 in the UK. And not everybody with long COVID is going to have a nutritional issue. But that's what the hub is trying to help people with, is first of all to identify if you've got a problem. Tell us about the hub. There is a lot of information out there. It's really hard to filter it and work out what's right and what's good, what's bad. And so we decided to create the Knowledge Hub, which is a place where both professionals can go um, to look at the best available evidence uh, for treating nutrition with patients who have covid We've arranged it in the normal way that professionals work, so thinking about identifying, assessing, monitoring, and then operational challenges. And then for patients, we've created a separate side of the hub, which looks at, again, how they can identify if they may have a nutritional problem, how symptoms may affect your diet and nutrition, and um, particularly important is how to access professional support. So either a registered dietitian or a registered nutritionist. Can you tell us the differences between the nutritionist and the dietitian and how we choose between them? So dietitians are um, the only healthcare professional who are qualified to treat and manage disease with diet. Dietitian is a legally protected title, so you can only use it if you have the right qualifications and you're registered with the Health and Care Professions Council. So it is actually regulated? It's regulated. You have to um, meet a defined set of competencies and you have to adhere to a code of conduct, which includes not selling or marketing any nutritional products. Really? Because I think that's, that's an area that is quite a big concern in this whole sphere is the sort of lack of regulation within the nutritional products. And so I think the reassurance that you are going to someone who has that qualification. And it removes that conflict of interest. 
where you may have somebody who's trying to sell you nutritional products and give you nutritional advice at the same time with dietitians. They're there to advise you and give you personalized, tailored advice for your particular situation. Right. So all dietitians are also nutritionists, but they have this sort of an additional level of qualification to enable them to help people manage and treat disease. And so nutritionists can advise people in particular life circumstances, perhaps sport or pregnancy or with any particular thing they, they're struggling with, and also public health nutrition. Uh, nutritionists isn't a protected title, so anybody can call themselves a nutritionist, but nutritionists can volunteer to register with the Academy of Nutritionists. So getting a referral to a dietitian, you can see a dietitian on the NHS. First port of call, as usual, is your GP. Some GPs do have dietitians working in their practice. Others can refer you to a dietitian working in community. As with any referral in the NHS at the moment, there's likely to be a waiting list. And I know that there are many long COVID clinics that have been set up that do not have a dietitian as part of the service. So long COVID clinics are also constrained in that they don't necessarily have a professional within the team to refer directly to. So they might have to refer out to other dietetic services. And that's one of the things that you were trying to fulfil. Yeah, so with the hub, I've been promoting the hub to the long COVID clinic group. There is a a professional group. And so they, they all know about it. So at least they have somewhere to go to get the best available evidence to support patients. So the hub's designed to support dietitians and other healthcare professionals, as well as um, patients. Patient. And the hub also gives you um, some links to find a private dietitian. So if, if you've got the resources to do that, um, there's a register you can look for somebody and also to link you to the registered nutritionists as well. So now on our hub, we've got a series of um, lectures which we delivered quite early on in our project, but it was sort of uh, autumn last year. And we've got a dietitian who talks about how to keep a diet diary and how to monitor your symptoms. So I'd really recommend going and, and listening to that. She's a dietitian who works in allergy. And that's one area where you really have to spend a lot of time looking at what you're eating and how it affects your symptoms to try and unpick what food might be causing the symptoms. So that's a really useful talk. There's also a talk from a clinical psychologist who advises you how to approach appointments with healthcare professionals, how to get the best out of them. So to how to go along prepared with the right information so you can get the best out of that, what's likely to be quite a short appointment, Yeah, particularly if it's on the NHS. The other two talks, um, there's a talk by Professor Philip Calder, who's an immunologist, um, And he gives a great overview of your immune system and how diet affects your immune system. And he's advising what a Mediterranean-style diet looks like. So there's some really nice practical tips in there, but also some of the theory and the detail about immunology behind it as well. And the, the final talk is from a nutrition scientist, Dr. Sarah Berry, 
and a dietitian, Elaine Anderson. So Sarah Berry works on the Zoe team. She talks about some of the findings they, they discovered from looking at what people ate during lockdown and with COVID. And Elaine talks about, um, she does see patients, she's a private dietitian, and so she talks about um, some of the things to think about and nutrients to watch for and how to manage your diet. So some practical tips in there. Okay, great. So just to say again, that's the Knowledge Hub, so people can find that. Yeah, so it's the Nutrition and COVID-19 Knowledge Hub. But if you think you might have an issue, the Nutrition and COVID-19 Recovery Hub will help you start to think through the things you can do so that on there there's how to self-assess for nutritional problems. And then you can seek out the necessary support of a dietitian through your GP if you've got those range of problems that would put you at risk. And then hopefully other professionals who you would see through long COVID clinics also have access to the Knowledge Hub so they can kind of give the basics, you know, just generally what diet should I be following if I keep saying (laughs) in a very repetitive manner, get on your Mediterranean style diet. Yeah. I think I might just move to the Mediterranean though. I think it would be easier to have a Mediterranean diet if I lived in the Med. So Yeah. I can agree with that. (laughs) I mean, the best part of that interview was the fact that I can eat Monster Munch and not feel guilty. (laughs) Well, I I did really like that, that she basically says, don't beat yourself up too much about all of it, because I think that there is so much pressure within the cohort to do this, that and the other. And then you feel awful that you didn't take the probiotic or you didn't take the supplements that all of these people have said. And actually, I thought that was quite refreshing. Do you actually need it? If you've got a deficiency, take things. I'll be honest, I do feel like there is a lot of peer pressure within the long COVID groups to try the latest thing. And everybody kind of grabs hold of one treatment and wants to try it and feels guilty if they can't yeah it's sort of clamoring to take certain things and like professor hickson said some of this is not yet evidence-based and that is not to say that it doesn't work but if there is not yet evidence to say that x y and z does work perhaps we shouldn't feel the pressure to jump on and do it immediately i'm guilty of that within certain limits i'm guilty of buying all the different supplements and they're not obviously not taking them but but buying them do you feel i feel pressured sometimes to like try things i also find whilst i do think find that the a lot of the time the community especially in the social media space is very supportive of each other i do find that there is also a kind of negative undertone at times when you don't necessarily jump on the bandwagon of a certain product or of a certain treatment or you suggest that you're sitting on the fence about things I think that sometimes there could be a little more kindness and people could be more accepting of people wanting to bide their time Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates 
And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.